Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Wealth Tech Show. This is the podcast that focuses all on how technology is changing financial advice, wealth management, and the world of financial services and personal finance. Um, today, we're taking a slight departure from our usual content, a variation on a theme, if you will, because today's podcast uh, features Jamie Bartlett, host of the BBC's Missing Crypto Queen podcast. Now, this podcast has been downloaded by millions of people. Uh, it reached number one on the iTunes chart, which is incredible, and it covers the one scam involving a phony cryptocurrency and the theft of billions of pounds. Now, the book to accompany the series has just been released. Uh, to let you know about that. You can get that in most reputable bookstores. And Jamie is here to talk about that and a few other things too. So, Jamie, look, this is a, an absolutely wild story. The perpetrator of the scam, uh, Dr. Ruja Ignatova, is now on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. Um, there's so much to discuss. Uh, but first, Jamie, welcome. Welcome to the show. And, and how are you getting on today? Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm not too. I'm just. I'm loving the slightly cooler weather. You know, yesterday is the hottest day on record, and uh, oh man, I mean, it's been it's been brutal. So um, that was something else, wasn't yeah. it? I think it was 39 oh, degrees God. where I was. I, know. I don't know if you had the same, but I yeah, nearly 30, melted. Yeah, 39 <laughs> degrees, and you just walk out, think, and you just, you know. Walk to the shop and come back. It just takes it out of you. You're just so lethargic. Can't get anything done. So all the usual things people complain about. But um, oh man, yeah. I mean, I'm still recovering. Still cooling down. Yeah, I mean, the office is is busy today, and I, I'm pretty sure that's 99 percent because of the aircon. But yeah, I don't know if yeah. people would admit that. Up this front, is the but, way to get people but... back in the office. After all, like, working from home isn't all it's cracked up to be. Absolutely not. We just needed a healthy dose of climate change. My partner's gone into the office as well today, and I think the aircon was part of the reason she went. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, Jamie, I, I'd, I'd love to talk about it being 39 degrees, but I guess we should get into into this story. Um, so, Jamie, can you quickly, I mean, even independent of OneCoin, you've had a, you know, a, a great career as an author and write about technology and the dark web as well. Can you, can you tell us a bit about, about your career background and, and, and some of your work? Sure, I'll be brief about it. But basically, in 2009, I'm working at a research think tank, and I sort of specialise in research methods, the normal stuff, running workshops, designing questionnaires, that kind of thing. And I suddenly get this idea that the English Defence League, if you remember that, those guys, the sort of far-right <laughs> yeah. football hooligan types, everyone was writing about their street demonstrations, but I could see they were much bigger on Facebook than they were offline, and I felt like they were a really interesting online-offline hybrid. So mm -hmm. I, I designed a survey questionnaire that I could, I could target using Facebook targeting at members of the English Defence League. You know, like, rather than trying to sell jeans or T-shirts or whatever, it was, to, it, was to, it was to get EDL supporters on Facebook to fill in an online survey. And I spent about 100 quid on it. And I go out over the weekend, come back expecting no one's filled it in. And a 1,000 EDL people had filled wow. in my online survey. And I, and I suddenly had this realisation <laughs> that... This is a whole, the internet is a whole new unexplored source of valuable data, but that you need to apply methods and techniques to collect and analyze and make sense of the incredible amounts of data that's now there. And from there, I, I built, I, I created a, a social media research group with computer scientists to do proper social media analysis, proper data scraping and large number crunching using machine learning. And it kind of just kept spiraling. I ended up then writing a book about the dark net because I became fascinated in how 
online subcultures worked. And then you suddenly you're pigeonholed. I, I became, you know, what happens when you're an author? You write a book that becomes a success. It's all about, it was all about darknet subcultures and how online markets worked yeah. and people using Bitcoin to buy drugs. And everyone wanted me to talk about that. And I become the guy that specializes in weird online subcultures, especially <laughs> criminal subcultures. I didn't intend to ever really be that. But also companies would get me in and pay me to talk about it. And I, it became my thing. And, and then I come across this, you know, a crypto scam that's bigger than anything I've ever worked on in tw late 2018 with a BBC journalist. And now I'm the crypto queen guy that's my <laughs> so that's a very very brief that is how i sort of got from 2009 doing boring like seminar design to hunting down yeah. uh, someone that's now on the fbi's top 10 most wanted list it's weird how life works that's out, nuts absolutely i mean yeah. you've gone from the edl to yeah. to the dark web yeah. to you know, crypto scams, and now you're on on my podcast, Jamie. It really so it only is the gets highlight worse. of all. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever. <laughs> I've spoken to a lot of strange, you know, unusual people, but you're probably <laughs> right up there, Ian. Brilliant. <laughs> I spent three months God, with Tommy luck. Robinson, but it doesn't compare to. <laughs> five minutes chatting to you <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing that is going on my linkedin um anyway jamie look let's talk about the one coin story because that really is something else as you, as you mm. allude to at the end this has become a, a major story uh, and i'm sure you you've talked about it a hell of a lot and mm. a lot of people listening in will know the story but could you quickly outline it for us I'll, I'll and i know again. it's a, a big a big thing but the, the, the key points yeah it's a big complicated story with so many sort of interesting little subplots but the basic version is this it's 2014 the price of bitcoin is 400 dollars or whatever Dr. Ruja Ignatova, a German-Bulgarian businesswoman with a PhD in law and a master's degree from Oxford, five years experience at a consulting firm, turns up and basically says to the world, Bitcoin is for geeks, it's for nerds. It's going to change the world because money is going digital. We're going to all be using cryptocurrencies one day, but Bitcoin isn't right. It's, it's techie. It's complicated. Transactions are totally irreversible. So it's never going to work for ordinary people who lose their passwords and get hacked. Um, and it's used by criminals and gangsters and all the rest of it. You know, it's this anarchic thing. We need to build a new, like, Bitcoin 2.0, the, 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 the version that's going to work for the masses. And she called it OneCoin. And she started selling OneCoin, telling people it was going to be the future of money. It was early days so get in now and it'll change your life you'll get very rich but you're also being part of a global financial revolution but here's the kicker it was not sold like bitcoin is on a open exchange where you can buy and sell it and the price is determined by supply and demand it was sold through multi-level marketing which is if you know avon tupperware mm -hmm. herbalife amway you buy products, you recruit people who then sell those products f to their friends and family who in turn sell it to their friends and family and you create this sort of large network of sellers and the sort of commissions go up the pyramid. She sold one coin through multi-level marketing. People would spend 5,000 euros buying one coin, then they would recruit their friends and family to buy 5,000 euros worth of one coin and they'd get a commission from that 
who in turn would recruit their friends and family. So this thing grows like at a speed that makes Bitcoin look like a snail. It Within 18 months, a million people had, had invested 4 billion euros into what they thought was the next Bitcoin. And they log on to their account and the OneCoin um, HQ in Sofia, Bulgaria, see they've got all these OneCoin in their accounts. They see the price of it. They, they're excited to see the price going up. They're gonna, they can't cash it out and turn it into real money just yet, but Ruja says next month, next month, next year, it's going to be all available to trade on a proper site like Kraken or Poloniex or one of those big ones. Mm. And, then, and then in October 2017, she boards a flight from a Ryanair flight from Sofia, Bulgaria to Athens, Greece, just with a passport and a handbag and a security guard and is never seen of or heard of again. And she's disappeared with f- f- at least $500 million of people's money, probably much more, assets all over the world. And the whole thing is basically a sophisticated pyramid scheme. There was no real technology behind it. The price of the coins that people thought they owned was made up by her. Uh, mm. It was all just a big elaborate hoax. And the podcast and the book is about not only explaining how this all worked and what you've got to be wary of and how she pulled it off, but where on earth did she go? Where is she? And I can go into that in a great lot of detail, but as you said, just three weeks ago or so, she appears. One week after my book comes out, she appears on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list, most wanted fugitives list. And I couldn't believe it. I didn't even know that was going to happen. I was absolutely, I could not believe it when someone told me that it was about to happen. And um, so I don't think I knew what I was getting myself into, to be honest, when I started all this, because I just thought it was an interesting little story. Yeah. So, so, say, so it's amazing though. Yeah, yeah carry yeah. on. Sorry. Yeah. Well, no. So, so the whole thing just snowballed. I mean, the success of the podcast and the sort of the story, and everyone started hearing about it and learning about it because it's a story about crypto scams, but it's also a story about a missing woman who's on the run with everyone's money and is still on the run. So the whole thing's completely nuts, really. But um, that's it. That, in a nutshell, that is the story of OneCoin. Yeah, it's an incredible story. And if I'm not mistaken, you you heard about it through a friend talking about it, right? Yes. Well, Georgia Cat, the BBC producer who worked with me, well, we worked with each other on the podcast. So anyone that's heard it will have heard her throughout. It's basically me and Georgia doing everything. Um, mm-hmm. She was at a dinner party and a friend of a friend was actually pitching one coin to her as an investment. Not you're a journalist but more like, yeah. <laughs> would you like to buy some OneCoin from me? I've I've invested loads of money. It's amazing. It's the future of finance. My my OneCoin assets are going up and up in value. Don't miss out. And she's thinking, hmm, you know, I don't know about this. She she then goes online and looks it up and sees that the founder hasn't been seen for a year, and the whole thing <laughs> looks very off. It's the your normal crypto. Yeah, there's a lot of. Um, evangelism in the crypto world but the guys who talk on the stage are really technical you when you go to a ethereum conference it's really like it's all about hash rates and mining times and you know lightning networks and really really sophisticated stuff by people that have phds in cryptography you go onto a one coin conference and you see it's people going you're gonna change your life forever this is your time your (laughs) moment you're gonna finally become the person you deserve to be and there's no (laughs) 
There's no talk about the technology. It's just about the dream of transforming your life and getting rich and building a life for your family. And she's thinking, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. And why has no one heard of this? Why is this not in all the newspapers? Yeah. Um, so that's how it all started, really. And I, and I know the BBC were really interested in any story that could make cryptocurrency appeal to ordinary people. Yeah, back in, we were, I, I suppose the BBC was, is always looking for things where it's like, how do you make something very technical, quite boring, but that more and more people seem to be investing in? understandable and enjoyable for people to listen to because a lot of Bitcoin or crypto podcasts, I mean, let's be honest, they're a bit boring and they're technical people talking to each other. Whereas this was like, let's go and find this missing woman. And on the way, we will make diversions to explain how blockchains work and how money laundering works and how multi-level marketing works and all these other things just... Uh, yeah. So the, the story just seemed perfect to turn into a podcast to get people interested interested in crypto itself. And I've, I've actually had a lot of people saying, I think I might understand blockchains better now. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, after hearing that, and I've, I've sat through hundreds of technical things and it makes no sense. But I kind of get it now. I've heard this story about this missing woman who faked a blockchain. So, yeah, that's how it all started. Yeah, I, I totally see that as well, because so many of the conversations around crypto, as you say, are impossible to follow, follow. And then you've also got people pumping these cryptocurrencies, and they clearly know nothing about the technology behind them. Now, yeah. as you say, what's fascinating about the, the missing crypto queen is that the one coin was not a cryptocurrency, right? Yeah, yeah. It was really... This, some of the crypto people don't like me very much because they... <laughs> probably are annoyed that I even call it a cryptocurrency because they say it's, it's a, this is a multi-level marketing scam. It's a pyramid scheme. It, the, the, there was no cryptocurrency behind it, but she, which is kind of true. But she, she essentially, it was, a, it was a very old-fashioned scam. It was, I'm selling you something for 5,000 euros. It's an investment that's going to go up in value loads in the next five years. Um, great. Thank you very much. Could you sell it to your friends and family and you'll get a commission and I'll get a commission? Great, thanks very much. But the investments could have been anything. It was all just meaningless numbers on a screen. So all the money is kind of accumulating in commission. So every time I sell a 5,000 euro package of one coin, I get 10%. And then when you sell, because I've recruited you, I'll get like 5% of that and you'll get 10%. And it just goes down the chain. But there's nothing there. There was no real technology there. So it was just a pyramid scheme. It's a classic pyramid scheme. Just all you're doing is making money from recruits into the system. You're not really selling anything of any value. But the but OneCoin did benefit from the branding, the 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 hype, the language, the feeling that this was a global financial revolution. You know, if it had not been for Bitcoin's incredible price rise, no one would have bought OneCoin. So it's it you know the crypto world has some it does have some you know does have some responsibility i suppose over this so i still am happy to call it a crypto scam in a way but the essence of it is a very old fashioned scam but you dress an old fashioned scam up with the language of financial global revolution cryptocurrencies you know the and people think it's new people don't see it for what it is yeah 
I think that's such an important point. And again, as you say, and I discussed this with Erica Stanford as well in a, in a previous episode of the podcast. Oh, yeah, so crypto many of these wars, scams. yeah. Absolutely. And we were talking about her book and so many of these scams are just very old, old-fashioned human scams that have been going on for years just with some confusing layer of crypto thrown on, exactly as you say. Yeah. Um, look, people who listen to the podcast, and there's obviously millions of them, uh, will be excited to know that your book's out now as well. Um, is there anything you can let us know that's in that book that kind of moves the story on from that final episode of the podcast? Oh, yeah, but there's absolutely loads. Uh, in fact... I'm now, I've, the book has overtaken the podcast in terms of where it's at. And there's going to be another podcast episode coming out soon that's going to catch up with the book. Uh, it's just a weird way that it's all fallen out, I suppose. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, so there's, there's, there's so many bits of the story that we've, we've now been able to piece together slightly better. How it came to be that the FBI first got onto her, for example, the origin story, the role of the multi-level marketing world at the very beginning when all of this started. But I suppose the things that everyone's most interested in really is 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 where where did she get to? Like where is she? And then hmm. can you move that yeah. bit of the story on, please? It's funny, the BBC top people at the BBC are always like, you can do more episodes. But we really do need you to focus in on where she's gone, not all of the backstory anymore, because we kind of know that. So I'll give you a couple of quick updates on that. Law enforcement is finally catching up with this. So her brother was arrested, uh, pleaded guilty to running the company after she disappeared, decided to work with the government, testified for the government. Is Currently, his whereabouts are unknown, just like his sister's. He might end up on a witness relocation scheme. Her investment manager was convicted for money laundering and fraud, uh, money laundering and bank, uh, bank uh, fraud. Um, her lover pleaded guilty for money laundering. So the, the law, law enforcement's finally in the last 18 months catching up with this. There's an ongoing trial in Germany with, with one of her lawyers and one of her money men. The, her head of security, who is a former top spy from Luxembourg. The US mm -hmm. is trying to extradite him to charge him for money laundering. So the whole thing, like law enforcement took a very long time, but they're now onto it. She is the last woman standing. She is still out there. So a couple of things that we've discovered that are of most interest, but I don't want to give away everything because uh, who's going to want to read the book? <laughs> but this is the thing. Yeah. She disappears in October 2017. We're like trying to figure out where she gone, who she with. February 2018, so about six months later, we're going through her brother's Instagram because obviously that's her brother and his whereabouts is of great interest to us. So six months later, her brother's on Instagram and he posts a, a picture on his birthday, a selfie, where he says, oh, happy, oh, thanks for all the birthday wishes, guys, like birthday mode on, hashtag birthday hashtag instagram all this usual rubbish yeah and yeah. it's a selfie high quality stuff yeah, yeah yeah exactly it's a selfie and he tags it in sofia bulgaria but in the background there are like skyscrapers and a minaret and we think that doesn't look like sofia bulgaria that looks like the gulf and we know that rouge has spent a lot of time in dubai uh, she owned businesses there. She owned property over there. We also had heard that she owned a sort of kind of secretive mansion over there. And we thought, I wonder whether, 
I wonder whether that is the sort of place she could have gone in February 2018. Like she could have left Bulgaria and gone to Dubai trying to, you know, she knew she was on the verge of being arrested. So Dubai is a safer place. So I get in touch with someone who works for, worked for Bellingcat, the open source intelligence people, but was a, an open source specialist at the BBC. And I said, do you reckon you could um, take a look at this selfie? Because I don't think it was posted in Sofia. Could you think you could tell from the buildings in the background of the selfie what city this was taken in? And about a week later, he sends me an, an encrypted email and he says, I can tell you not only what city is it in, I'll tell you what the address is of the garden that he's standing in. Wow. Because he has <laughs> used reverse image searches, Google Earth, and basic geometry to like find all the buildings, line of sight from Constantine's phone, and then match up walls, trees, shrubs, little buildings all the way until he can work out the garden, that the, like literally to the metre where this photo was taken from one selfie. And it was a property that was bought in 2016 for 18 million dirhams. And we had other evidence saying that Ruja bought a property around that time for tw about 20 million dirhams. So we're like, holy shit, this is where Constantine's gone to visit his sister and she's in Dubai, in that mansion, hiding. So I send around... Um, a Deliveroo driver with some Krispy Kremes knocking on the door, <laughs> pretending I, like that's yeah. where I live. <laughs> um, that's but, but no one's there, but the house has been abandoned. No one was there, no one's in, like there's nothing's going on there. So we, um, we, so, like, we, we got somewhere and then we hit another dead end. Now I, the story moves on more about where she might have gone after that, but we're piecing it together. And the other thing as well is that ever since that FBI... I swear to God, ever since that FBI notice went up, it's a reward of $100,000, we're getting dozens and dozens of more tip-offs. But the amazing thing is this is people's memory and sort of, sort of recognition ability is so varied. Because like, people will call me and tell me for a fact she's here, mm -hmm. and someone else will call me the next day and tell me for a fact they've spotted her on the other side of the world. And they can't both be true. She's at Heathrow Airport. Yeah. She's at this place. She's at that place. And it's really difficult to try and work it out. But we've we've done our we've done our best to figure figure this one out and where where we think she is right now. And it, and it probably is actually still in Europe. Yeah, and I was I was thinking about that earlier. Actually, you must get you know what's what's the wildest tip off you've had because you must get some crazy ones. We would tip. We well, yeah. I mean, she's there's a group of people who are convinced that she moved to. Brazil or Belize or one of the one of the uh, Latin American countries had a sex change and <laughs> is living is living pretty openly over there. Loads right. of plastic surgery, Brazil. Um, but we have very credible ones. Like we we had a really credible sighting at Heathrow Airport, and that really that aligned with another really credible sighting from someone who thought that she was living in a house he was working on. And I was like, oh, my God. All right, because you've got to remember that she's got, she'll have fake documents, fake passport, fake name, plastic surgery. So you would walk straight past her, Ian, and you wouldn't know it was her. I look at pictures of her every day, so I think I'd still spot her. But um, she could get away with it for a long time. This, this FBI notice is causing her a big problem because her face is now everywhere. So it's going to be harder yeah. than ever. But we've had, yeah. all, you know, had all sorts, had all sorts. We, if, if anyone listened to the podcast, they remember that 
we went to a beauty pageant that was a one coin beauty pageant in Romania really felt quite dodgy and I was told afterwards that she was there blonde hair totally different look but she was sitting there watching this it's possible. I scoured all the yeah. videos to find, but I just, you know, couldn't, couldn't figure do, it out. Yeah. Do you think you shared a room with her at some point? So it's like thirty percent likely she might have been there because yeah. the theory is that she, for us is that she was is was around Europe, but on balance, probably not. I don't think she's that brazen. Yeah. I've got to say, I love the idea that someone's working on a house and just assumes that they're doing a job for Dr. Ruja. <laughs> you know, you know, why is she trying to pay me in Bitcoin? What's going on here? I can yeah, see honestly, that. yeah, it's it's crazy, it's crazy, and it's hard as well because she, me and her are basically the same age, and she, um, she she's obviously the last known picture of her is from 2017. So we're talking about five years, and you can age a lot in five, especially the last five years. Oh, God, yeah. You, you can age an awful lot. And if you're doing a lot of plastic surgery as well, like she's going to look quite different. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And another thing is, I mean, you were talking about how easy it was to, well, sort of, well not easy necessarily, but how you were able to identify that photograph. Uh, you know, just from using Google Earth and a few reverse image searches and things like that. Has, has working on this podcast and, and tracking Dr. Ruja made you think differently about how you use your own data? Because, I mean, yeah, you've worked, you've mingled with some pretty interesting people. I'm assuming you don't want everyone to know where you are all the time. So has it, has it had an impact on how you deal with your own photographs, etc.? Yeah, it has to an extent. I definitely, because of the sorts of people that will be pissed off with this book, uh, and I know that they use the same sorts of techniques that I used on her. I uh, definitely don't. I don't post any photos of anywhere near I live, where I live at all. Mm -hmm. Unfollow a lot of my friends and family. So none of them. I don't follow any of them on social media. They don't follow me. Um, which is, I mean, there's a good. That's quite good, generally, probably to be honest with you. But the, but the. <laughs> but the it's really difficult when you're a writer because I, I have to go out and public. I have to go on Twitter and say, I am going to be speaking at this festival on this day. Please come and listen. Yeah. I can't get around that. I can't do my job without letting people know where I am. So every time I go out, you know, I'm always a little bit worried and paranoid. And especially when the book first came out and when the podcast first came out, I was extremely paranoid that I was being followed and... Even if that's not true, it can have a really bad detrimental effect on your mindset just to believe that you are all the time. It's horrible. And one of the strangest things happened the day that the podcast first came out. I'm in bed and it's, a, it's a literally three in the morning and the, someone starts banging on my door and screaming, get out of the house, get out of the house. And I'm like, oh, my God. God, they've found me already. I can't believe it. So I phoned 999 and I'm going, what do you want? Shouting to this guy. And he's like, get out of the house. So I have 999. I have the police on the phone and I'm saying, I'm actually telling them, like, I've released a podcast about a crypto scam and I think they've found me. And these guys on the line are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but it was someone at the wrong house. 
the oh, wrong no. house. <laughs> oh. And, you know, like, it's horrible. So you get very, I mean, that wouldn't be nice any time, but you get very, very yeah. paranoid about everything, um, which is, which is a nice though. feeling. That's, that, no, it seems like a totally reasonable response to it. Yeah, I, mean, you, I don't like it. You, I, 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 I don't yeah, think I, I you imagine. know what, to be honest with you, I don't think I'm set out, I don't think I'm the right person for this kind of job. I'm, I'm <laughs> too, I'm too nervous of a disposition. I don't really like confrontation, but the job requires me to confront people uh, <laughs> and, uh, and worry about getting threatened and stuff. And I'm not the right person to do that, but this, because I never knew this story was going to end up like this. I just, it yeah. sort of drifted into it and, and, I can't stop now because, you know, it's kind of the story of a lifetime and, and, and people listen and they want to hear it. And I think I, I actually think that people might like the fact I'm like, I'm quite nervous about it. I think they can tell when I'm doing it that, that I'm, <laughs> I'm as awkward and nervous as they would be if they were in my position. <laughs> so they sort yeah, but of you, see themselves yeah. doing it. But you've put yourself in some pretty risky situations, right? I mean, there must have been some moments where you feared for your, your safety. Yeah, well, and, 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 and funnily enough, when we went to visit her yacht in Sozopol, uh, we had a hunch and a couple of people saying that she might even be there, she might live on that yacht a little bit. And so we were a bit nervous and we're kind of... Sozopol's tiny, it's in, on the Black Sea in Bulgaria, and everyone knows everyone and there aren't that many bits of accommodation. We're like, she'll know that we're staying here. So she could also just break into our rooms. And we were really like, should we we'll use fake names? I think we might use fake names where we were staying and stuff like that. And we're walking around, we go up to the boat and there's these really weird people milling around just looking at us. And we ask them questions and they just stare at us and smile and they don't answer anything. And the people working there talk about mysteriously powerful people that are behind all this and... And I, we recorded all that, and I used that in the podcast, and some people said, oh, you're being over the top. But then when I see on the FBI's most wanted list, it says, be wary, Rouge and people with her are likely to be armed. And I'm like, I knew I felt, I knew I felt uncomfortable there. <laughs> I knew I did. I was right to be worried about it. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. but it, it's, putting yourself in a dangerous position isn't always physical. Sometimes it's... Um, you know, just people might, if people can find where you live based on doing online research about you, you don't even need mm -hmm. to go anywhere and you piss people off and they can cause you problems. So that's just part and parcel of the job, but it's not a nice, it's not a nice bit of it. Yeah, I think if you're feeling vindication from the FBI's top 10 most wanted list, then you, you can't really be said to be shying away from the task, can you? So I can kind of... Well, I, yeah, I can, and yeah. That, that really, I really felt relieved when that came out because I thought, you know what, it, it just sort of justifies what we've done and it probably, anyone that was thinking of causing us trouble is probably going to think, you know what, I'll probably just quietly, I'll probably just stay quiet now because I, <laughs> now the yeah. FBI really are onto her. Maybe I should just not mention, you know, not get involved, step away from this. So it, I think it made me feel a bit safer actually. Yeah, and I, I don't know if you'd even be able to talk about this if they did. But do any, you know, have any of the authorities spoken to you about your your findings and your and your work on this so far? Well, no, they haven't. Um, we had tried to do. The problem is that you don't. What talking to the authorities is always a bit of a difficult one for journalists because on the one hand, you, they know a lot. They know a lot more than is public, and you want to know what they know. But also, you don't want to really, you don't want them to say to you, right, can you hand over 
would you hand over what you know? Because you don't want to be a journalist who goes to the FBI and is like, hi, I got stuff that will be useful for you. Here it is. <laughs> so you know what I mean? You, you'd lose all credibility. If you're the kind of journalist that researches stuff, gets the confidence of people, and then goes to the FBI and tells them everything, even when it's a criminal mm. like her, you, you'd lose all credibility. So it's a dangerous dance when you're trying to talk to the authorities because they might also then tell you stuff and then say this is totally off record, strictly you cannot repeat any of this, um, X, Y, Z. You know, they tell you this information that you can't use, but you now know. And the problem is if you then find that out in and through other means, they've kind of stopped you from mentioning, they can, they can make it harder for you to do your work that way. Do you know what I mean? I know that there have been times, yeah. this has not happened to me, but I've spoken to other people who've said, They've been told things off record intentionally so that they then can't use that material because the person telling them off record doesn't want this to come out but wants to basically stop them from ever saying it if they find it another way. So it's a really difficult one. It's a really difficult one. I'm, I, am, I know that the authorities have read, read all the work that we've done and listened to it. Um, when I went to the US, when I went to the courtroom, when one of Rouge's associates was being tried prosecuting team the department of justice prosecuting team were all there and they said they'd all been avid listeners of the podcast you know they all knew the podcast of course because it's the story they're working on so that was kind that was kind of cool yeah it's amazing honestly and and how it started from a a conversation um to to be the story that it has been is quite something this is why for journalists but i guess also for investors as well you've got to You just, you've got to have your ears open to people and what they're saying, what they're talking about at dinner parties, at events. Like, what are you doing? And what's that? How does that work? All right. So where'd you hear about that? That's where you get all your stories as journalists. Most journalists get their stories from people they know who know other people who are doing something weird or have a story to tell. And you've got to be really open to that. And I, and I, anyone could have found this story really early on because there was a group of online activists that were calling this a Ponzi scheme from day one. But they were they were posting it on a small, obscure, scrappy blog site that didn't look very professional. And I think people would have just ignored it. But the information on there was amazing. So, you know, never judge a website by its... <laughs> By its color, yeah. by, by its design. Yeah, no, no, no. It's, it's incredible, though, isn't it? And you know, if anyone wants to invite me to any parties or free lunches, I'm open to those. Um, you know, all in the name of doing a good and job. Listen, and listen, and talk to people. In- What's the weird things your friends are doing right now? Really? How are they heard about that? <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's incredible. It really is. Um, look, one other thing. I want to go back to um, your work on the dark web. Uh, you know, because the crypto yeah. queen story is incredible. The book obviously is going to tell people so much more beyond the podcast. But you've, you've, again, this whole area was almost like the real first kind of emergence of cryptocurrency, wasn't it? The dark web. Bitcoin became a, a currency, the currency of the dark web. Yeah. Has that, do you think that's really shaped people's perceptions of it, or is that a bit kind of old hat now? Is that have we moved on from that? I, I, I feel like we are in the transition point now that Bitcoin, thanks, frankly, to people like Saylor and Musk and the other, and obviously, and um, Jack Dorsey, 
the Gemini um, place in New York by the the Winklevoss twins, the sort of serious, well-known tech entrepreneurs. I think the amount of publicity around crypto that is, is, is increasingly about investment, big tech being involved, what it means, banks, stable coins that the Bank of England's talking about, slowly it's losing its tag as this kind of criminal enterprise, you know, this thing used by criminals. I think most people now, if you ask them about it, won't associate it with the dark web and drug deals, not anymore. Mm -hmm. That's only really been the last yeah. two years. And probably this, the pandemic buying frenzy, the mad bull run up to $69,000 on Bitcoin, and then the crash, uh, all of that has dominated the discussions about crypto for the last two years. And I think that is now, if you speak to the 2.3 million Brits that have invested in crypto assets, including NFTs, I think that is what they're interested in now. This is what they associate with crypto, not Silk Road and, you know, using a Bitcoin to buy yeah. weed. It's changed. It's still used for that stuff as well, but it's definitely changed. And when you're in it, I think when you're right in the thick of it, you can't see it. But if you actually step back and look at it more broadly, it was kind of obvious that was going to happen. I was going to say, my understanding is that now, if you're trying to use cryptocurrency on the dark web, there's, there's a larger chance of it being being tracked than ever before as well. Is, is that definitely, something that you, you def definitely? I mean, crypto tracing, asset tracing of all types, but crypto tracing in particular. There's now dozens of specialist companies. Uh, Elliptic is one of the biggest, and it's a UK-based company that specialises in basically following Bitcoin trans, well, crypto transactions around the, around the blockchain. And off block off Bitcoin into another currency and then back again. And they've got techniques to try and follow it on and off exchanges and so on. It's now increasingly difficult. It's an arms race. People will get round it again. But if you think you like ordinary Joe is able to mm -hmm. spend Bitcoin and it not be tracked, you're an idiot. It can be tracked. <laughs> if you're an extremely sophisticated money launderer who knows how to move money off certain exchanges and then back on again and do it in different jurisdictions. And that's different. That's a lot harder. That's still difficult. But for the average user, no. And this maybe is why central banks look at it now and think, yeah, yeah, this is actually quite useful, isn't it? Because maybe we could monitor everyone's transaction and, you know, maybe we could just take the tax off immediately as the transaction happens. Mm -hmm. It would make our tax, uh, you know, our tax collection uh, efforts simpler and cheaper and more effective. So it's weird because, you, you know, asset tracing technology has great benefits. And now, and now there'll be some police forces who will be like, please use Bitcoin. Oh, it'd be much easier for us than cash. Cash is a pain in yeah. the ass, which is the opposite of what a lot of the crypto revolutionaries thought would happen. But it was kind of always pretty yeah. obvious. Yeah, but I think that's an important one for any kind of wealth tech show subscriber who happens to be a hardened criminal. You should, you know, <laughs> these are important things that you need to know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Look, Jamie, uh, um, I think that might be an uplifting point to finish on. But, um, I, uh, look, I just want to, you know, point out thank you for joining us. That was such an enjoyable chat. The the story is is larger than life. I mean, the missing crypto queen really is 
something special. I can see, I can see why you've devoted so much time to it, despite despite the immense risks. And, and I realise people will probably want to, want to reach out to you. So I wanted to uh, note a tweet that you made yesterday where you said, if you absolutely 100% want to get an author's attention, don't bother with tweets, emails, or DMs. Write your message instead in an anonymous Amazon review of their latest book. So I think for anyone who wants to get in touch with Jamie, just just pie off his book. No, don't. Leave it a nice review. Um, this is, <laughs> my, main, sure this is, this is my main way of communicating with people now. So get on there. <laughs> book review. So it's either exactly. you know, effusive praise or it's your book's rubbish and then Jamie will pop up and say, no, it isn't. No, it isn't. Is... <laughs> Email me for further information. Exactly. On, on why you're wrong. Exactly why you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, look, Jamie, look, thank you so much again. I loved speaking to you. Really, really great to, uh, to catch up there. And also to everyone who's listened in, thank you for joining us on the Wealth Tech Show. I'm Ian Horn, and I'll be back again next week. Mm-hmm.